joined by Ken Braun, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. If you're like me, electricity is something that just comes out of the wall and turns on the lights. If you're like our guest, energy policy expert and creator of the docuseries Juice, Power Politics and the Grid, Robert Bryce, energy and electricity are so much more. He joins Ken and me to dis- discuss the realities of the power we all use and how it got to our appliances. Uh, Robert, before we begin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? <clears throat> Um, sure. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me on. I've uh, been watching Ken's work for a long time, admiring his dedication and his uh, uh, deep dive into uh, the influence industry and what that's about. Um, so I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. I've never had a real job. Uh, this is what I do. I write about the energy and power sectors. I've written six books. The latest one is called The Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. Um, I have the, I host the Power Hungry podcast, which I've been doing now for more than three years. Uh, I'm a film producer. I've produced my first documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, that came out in 2019. And as you point out, uh, oh, and I'm on Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, and TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and, uh, yeah, never mind the rest of them. Um and I have a new docu-series, five-part pro-nuclear docu-series coming out called Juice, Power Politics, and the Grid. And you can find more about that at juicetheseries.com. How's that? That's that's quite the quite the laundry list of entrepreneurial <laughs> endeavors. Uh, so what is, uh, what is your, your new docu-series about? Sure. <clears throat> well, this documentary really grew out of the first one. And that's kind of been my – that has been my history in, in journalism is – I just find that one project leads to the next one, and that's what that's what happened here. But more particularly, uh, my colleague Tyson Culver and I were convinced we had to do this docu-series after we got blacked out in Austin during Winter Storm Uri in 2021. And that really was the triggering event. And I reala- realized at that time, well, I'm called to do this, and I don't take that lightly. I, I was called. I thought, well, who else could tell the story better than me? Um, and the, 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 that, that this was, just... That was the, the incident... That was that was the incident where basically the energy grid in Texas failed during a winter storm, right? Well, yes, we had widespread blackouts and the grid came very close to complete failure, which would have been a catastrophic uh, event where a mass casualty event, as uh, it's known in the trade, um, had the grid completely failed. Um, but that led us to do this project. And briefly, the, what is our, this project about juice? power politics in the grid, we're explaining why and how there's been so much malinvestment in electricity generation and why we need uh, a nuclear power to fix it. If we're concerned about climate change, if we're concerned about a stable grid and affordable power, we need to embrace nuclear energy full stop. Well, Ken, uh, you've done quite a bit on uh, nuclear energy and the people who are against it. Uh, so I will now turn. I will now turn the questioning over to you, I, uh, Robert. I'm uh, looking forward to watching your docu series. Um, your you, the praise goes right back at you. I started my my long dive into the energy sector and all of that with your book, and jumped off from there to lots of other things. Big fan of your podcast. Um, the new docu series, as I understand it, you have a, an episode on. Um, some of the, N- the nonprofits, the NGOs that are that are really getting in the way of this agenda that you are, you know, quite 
properly uh, uh, advocating for natural gas to, to nuclear transition. Who, who are some of those NGOs that are covered in your uh, in your in your uh, series? Well, sure. We we point out um, that uh, this push toward alternative energy, and, and I call it alternative. I don't call it green. I don't call it clean or renewable. Those are marketing terms. But solar and wind, this push toward solar and wind has been pushed by some of the biggest climate-focused NGOs in America, Sierra Club, NRDC, Environmental Defense Fund, and many others. And we just simply point out that their budgets are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And as a quick side point, and, you know, Ken, you've made this uh, these points as well, the, the budgets for these, these so-called green groups, and they're not green because the, the alternative energy renewables are not green. They're the antithesis of green. The reality is that their budgets far exceed the, the, the amount of money that's being spent by the hydrocarbon sector, and it's not even close. Yeah, um, I mean, just in the in the greens, the you have written about the uh, the space, you know, the, the the supposedly environmentally friendly power sector is it chews up quite a bit of the environment, and um, in addition to the creatures in the environment. Um, the the eagles we can get into and the bats and the raptors that are killed by wind turbines but uh you're you also deal with um some the osage nation in oklahoma who just won a a big victory over one of the uh the wind companies um what what's what's that part of about sure well that's episode three of this five-part series each episode's about 20 minutes I'm particularly proud of this episode. Um, I have deep roots in Oklahoma. Uh, my maternal great-grandfather homesteaded uh, in the Cherokee Strip land run of 1890, uh, 1889, I think. But on my mother's—also uh, on my mother's side, my great-uncle was a member of the Osage tribe. And he, in fact, was born in Fairfax, Oklahoma in 1909. So he had a front row seat to the Reign of Terror, which, of course, is the focus of the movie The Killers of the Flower Moon, which now has been nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Actress, um, and and many others. Um, so my Uncle Ernie had a front row seat to the Reign of Terror. And his my cousin, Nora, now has an Osage head right. So this, is, this isn't distant history or, or isn't far away from my family. So I'm particularly proud of uh, what we were able to do, the reporting on the Osage Nation, because we've been reporting on it now for the last two years. And we have uh, on-camera interviews with five members of the Osage tribe talking about their opposition to this project that was put on uh, Osage traditional land by NL, the Italian company. And NL violated the tribe's sovereignty. Uh, very briefly, what happened is NL said they want to build these wind turbines. They built them on private land, but they mined the Osage tribe's minerals without the tribe's permission. So this is very reminiscent of what the Killers of the Flower Moon is about. An outside entity coming into the Osage uh, nation and taking something that they wanted and not compensating the tribe. Now, what happened in December 20th, federal court judge in Tulsa sided with the Osage Nation after more than a decade of litigation and told NL they have to remove all 84 wind turbines that it built and that the company built. And it's going to cost them more than $300 million. I can't tell you, Ken, how happy that makes me. I am so happy and I'm going to gloat all day long because it's a huge win for the Osage tribe and a huge win, a huge black eye for the wind industry. How does that how did, how did that work? So they they built the the wind turbines on private, non tribal land, right? But they so what did they what right of the tribe did they violate? 
the tribe's mineral estate. So the Osage are un, an unusual tribe in a lot of ways, right? And I, in fact, I'm reading Richard Rhodes' wonderful biography of John James, Audubon, uh, John James Audubon. And Audubon encountered the Osage when he was in Missouri in that part of the world um, back in the early 1800s. The Osage bought their reservation from the Cherokees in the in the 1870s. And when they bought it, they bought the minerals. And that was affirmed by during the Osage Allotment Act of 1906. I think my memory is correct here. So they they owned title to all of the minerals, including the oil and the gas and the rocks. Well, when Enel got the they got the surface rights to build the turbines, but they didn't get permission from the tribe to mine on Osage in the Osage okay, mineral so, mineral estate. So- so at the at the at the fifty thousand foot level, the tribe owns everything under the ground, right? And they didn't get the pri- proper permissions to put anything under the ground, right? But it's not the fifty thousand foot level; it's actually ground level. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but what makes all of this so egregious? And I'm I'm making fun of you a little bit there, Michael. But yeah, I mean, th- this is a, a classic case of an outside group taking advantage of a Native American tribe and the tribe fighting back. And litigating it now for over a decade, this was has been the longest running legal battle over wind energy in American history, and the tribe kicked their ass. And not only is the is it now going to have to remove the wind turbines at a cost of three hundred million dollars, the tribe is going to seek compensatory damages. And I had uh, uh, Everett Waller, the chairman of the Osage Minerals Council, on my podcast, on the Power Hungry podcast, to talk about that. And he told me later, he said, I said, so you're going to seek compensatory damages from NL? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, how much? He said, well, I'm not going to tell you, but it rhymes with millions. (laughs) (laughs) So so in addition to to folks like yourself who are taking their cause up and uh, broadcasting it far and wide to... uh, um, the adoring public such as myself um i you know I, I presume the sierra club world wildlife federation they were all uh, all all on the side of the tribe and uh helping them fight fight this uh this injustice right oh you cracked me up ken yeah <laughs> um no therein lies one of the the real um great disparities in all of this talk and all this activism around energy remember it was only a few years ago uh, for during the Dakota, Dakota Access Pipeline uh, controversy, all of these environmental groups, in, or rather NGO groups, climate activist groups, descend on Standing Rock Sioux reservations in support of Native American rights. Well, now that the Osage tribe had been fighting in L, what is where's the Sierra Club? Crickets, nothing. And one other key point to keep in mind here, gentlemen, is that. There was no there, there was no uh, doubt that Enel was violating the tribe's sovereignty. And in 2014, and I, re- I wrote about this on my Substack. In fact, robertbryce.substack.com, I reproduced the letter that the Bureau of Indian Affairs sent to Enel in 2014, saying, "You are violating the tribe's rights here. You don't have permission to mine on their on their mineral estate. You need to stop now." Instead of stopping, Enel sped up the work. And so that that wind project now, 84 turbines, has been operating since 2015, and Enel's been collecting by my by my calculations about 28 million dollars a year in tax credits and electricity sales from those wind turbines, and the tribe is going to go after all of that money. Yeah, I think um, the 300 million that that is claimed as the cost of 
pulling the turbines off of the uh, property. That was NL's uh, estimate um, initially, I think, as part of their effort to try and convince the judge not to hit them as hard as they've been hit. So I right. I, 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 I question that number. I wonder if it's really going to hurt them that bad. Um, but Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah. whether it's $300 million, whether it's $200 million, it, it may get... It yeah, may cost yes, them right. more to take them down than to, to, to put them up because that's True. a tricky operation. Um, but further, it, you know, in some ways that doesn't it. Well, it matters. It matters a great deal because it's always about the money. But to me, it is also about the fact that this is unprecedented in the history of the wind energy business that they would be ordered to remove 84 turbines. Now, there have been onesies and twosies and a few turbines that have been built and then taken down nothing on this scale. And it's so surprising, Ken and Michael, that the Sierra Club hasn't mentioned this, nor is the American Wind Energy Association, I'm sorry, the American Clean Power Association, have not mentioned any of this, right? It doesn't fit the narrative around clean, green, renewable, this, but this is just such an egregious case of corporate misbehavior. Um, And imagine, just imagine if Chevron or Exxon or you know, one of the big multinational oil and gas companies that acted this way on Native American land, what the outrage would be. It would be front page news in the New York Times. But because it's the Osage and it's wind and it doesn't fit the narrative, nothing. The New York Times has not reported a word about this, not one word. And now we're more than a month after uh, the judge's decision. I suspect if it had been a Chevron doing it, it would have there would have been a uh... <laughs> The the nonprofits uh, with combined budgets exceeding a billion dollars would have been tripping over each other to try and get in on the lawsuit um, rather than ignoring it as as we've discussed the the climate nonprofits. Um, yeah. Speaking of the turbines, uh, something struck me. You you had a rather fun interview with Bill McKibben, I think, back in the spring or summer um, on your podcast, and uh, you know, kind of contentious. I think is a fair way to to at least characterize the back end of it. Um, sure. in the middle of that, he, uh, you were discussing wind turbines and he said, uh, he, he, he said something to the effect that he thought that they were beautiful when, when they were going up, which struck me as a, uh, con- considering that the, uh, you know, just, just how vehemently the Yosage, I think quite properly objected to the scar on their landscape it, it, you know, I, I doubt Mr. McKibben sees a an oil and or gas well that takes up far less space is pretty, but uh, it was. What, 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 what? How did that interview come about, and what are your impressions of that? Well, um, where to start? Um, you know, I, I, Bill McKibben has been successful doing what he's doing. You give him credit, but he's become kind of this. I would argue a secular, uh, secular priest for the the climate activist groups. Right. And he even has that kind of kind of, you know, uh, 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 that attitude in his interviews of, you know, this um, uh, benevolent, benevolent uh, kind of uh, priest or minister or preacher. But the reality is that whether it's McKibben or anyone else, and I don't want to speak directly to McKibben, he's got his own things, but what they are doing is anti-environmentalism. You know, he can call wind turbines beautiful, but he's not living next to them. And I have talked to people for over the last decade, more than a decade, in fact, going on 15 years now, interviewing people who've had these big projects built next to their homes, and they are miserable. 
And that's why I've, uh, and this is one other thing in, in our new docuseries, I point out that uh, the huge number of rejections and restrictions on wind and solar projects that have happened across the country um, over the last uh, decade or so. The count now is up to 613 rejections and restrictions of wind or solar projects in the United States, and it's from Maine to Hawaii. And so, you know, for McKibben to say, I think they're beautiful. Well, OK, that's his that's his view. But all across rural America, local communities are saying, we don't want these projects. Go take them and put them somewhere where the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. We don't want them here. Um, I, the item I worked on on NL, um, I counted up the annual kilowatt or megawatt hours, whatever it comes out to, um, of per terawatt hour probably, of all their wind turbines, and I got a number that was less than, far less than the Palos Verdes nuclear plant. Just the, you know, all of NL's wind turbines across all of North America. And and they're they they add or all of the United States anyway add up to less than what they can produce out of one nuclear plant that sits on six and a half square miles and the the total acreage for Enel's wind turbines exceeded the I think it was about the size of Rocky Mountain National Park and Great Smoky Mountain National Park combined. <laughs> That's right. the square mileage of it. I mean, it's it's just insane what this you know this environmentalism climatism. What I've, I've got this essay that I've been writing in my head about the death of environmentalism, and it's been replaced by climatism and renewable energy fetishism, and this idea that any wind project, any solar project is a good project, no matter where they are put. And it's just not the case. And so it's just, right, right it's mad, it's just absolutely gripes my, you know, grills my cheese, as my late brother John Bryce used to say. So why, in your opinion, do you think that the, the, the green NGO industrial complex is so vehemently anti-nuclear, even though well, it seems like it would be a much easier way to get to the lower emissions future that they claim to want. Yeah. Well, how long do we have for this podcast now, Michael? <laughs> because going you into the psychology, I got 10 minutes. Um, going into the psychology of this and the history of this would take a long time. Um, but I think in brief, a lot of the anti-nuclear sentiment that is based in these NGOs, these climate NGOs or the climate industrial corporate climate uh, congressional complex um, goes back to the end of the Cold War or even the Cold War itself where uh, nuclear energy was conflated with nuclear weaponry. And so there were activists, and Michael Schellenberger talks about this in, in the docuseries, that, well, they knew they couldn't fight the military-industrial complex, so they decided they're going to fight the utilities. They're going to fight the, the power sector and say, oh, no, you can't have nuclear because nuclear is bad. Instead, we're going to go back to the garden. We're going to go back to this kind of Eden as the, as the destination kind of worldview, and wind and solar are more pure because they're natural, and we're going to live within the natural bounds of nature, and you add in some Malthusianism, you add in uh, anti-oil and gas uh, rhetoric, you add in fundraising for the Democratic Party around the demonization of oil and gas and coal, and you come up with this uh, anti-nuclear stance that is still the stock and trade for every major in, uh, climate NGO in America. And it's absolutely inexplicable. If you are serious, if 
That's a big if. You are serious about climate change. You have to be serious about nuclear power. And yet they aren't. So I think them, I think they are all. And, and I will include Bill McKibben in this. It's just a, it's a it's a fraud. It's a fraud. And McKibben tries to split hairs and say, well, I'm OK with, you know, keeping existing nuclear plants open. And I'm in, I've said that. And, well, then we need to build more nuclear. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, no, this is it's, it's yes or no. And it's difficult to build new nuclear. There's no doubt about it. But and it's going to take time. But. There's just no two ways about it. If you're anti-nuclear and anti-carbon dioxide, you're pro-blackout. I'm anti-blackout. Do you think um, – I want to go back to that inexplicable. I think we can explicate it. But um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um, do you think – Is I don't know if that's a word. That one, Mike, Mike is the it's English me, geek. He can explain. The word. <laughs> um, so uh, – Regarding a nuclear build out, what what are your views on the on the pro nuclear uh, aspects the in the Inflation Reduction Act? Um, yeah, is 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 really all of the wind and solar stuff going to crowd that out? What do you think is going to happen there? Well, uh, there's no doubt that the IRA has huge potential payouts to solar, depending on whether it gets reformed or not. The ultimate payouts to solar. If, if it, uh, you know, projections that have been made by Wood McKinsey bear out, it could be $900 billion. I mean, just the numbers are staggeringly large. Yes, there are some, there are some provisions in there for nuclear that are, that are pro-nuclear. There's no doubt about it. But, re- but remember, the, the provisions for other alt-energy stuff, whether it's hydrogen, batteries, carbon capture and sequestration, solar, wind, far outweigh and i mean by not even you know a country mile more than what is given to nuclear um and one other quick comparison that i think is important just in the last couple of days the new york times wrote this glowing piece about offshore wind you know yet another one two-page spread on um the uh, south fork wind project being built offshore new york now well it's 130 megawatts the cost is two billion dollars that's 15 million dollars a megawatt you could build new Vogel. Much, the Vogel power plant megawatt? in Georgia was was fifteen million. So, you know, you could build new nuclear for the cost of what they're doing, and new nuclear with enormous cost overruns, which is what happened at Vogel, unfortunately. But you could build new nuclear and have it available ninety five percent of the time instead of this idiotic offshore wind crap that's going to be built in the middle of, of North Atlantic right whale habitat and will work maybe thirty or forty percent of the time and slowly degrade and requires massive numbers of offshore uh, wind platforms. So. I, I just can't get any more cynical. In fact, mad about how stupid all of this is, and what a waste of ratepayer and taxpayer money it is. It, it strikes me. Um, I always look at the stuff. It always seems like it's following the ethanol pathway. You you pin them down on you know what your your wind doesn't work here. It, it's a complete failure. The levelized cost of energy, all the other lies uh, that go into it, and they whoa oh yeah well I mean, okay well, well now we're going to do offshore wind, and that's you know it's like ethanol moved from corn ethanol. Oh, that's a fraud. Well, okay, we're going to do it with you know switchgrass or roughage or whatever else. There's always yeah. a, a new scam to to add to it. Um, going back to the, it's inexplicable that these uh, these nonprofits are opposed to nuclear energy. Um, you know, when we get a little, it's it's hard to know what corporate funding they get for for a whole bunch of legal and, and privacy reasons that go into these uh, funding nonprofits, but. Uh, when you do lift the veil a little bit, I mean, I've seen the Rocky Mountain Institute thank Vestas and, um, you know, for, for 
for giving them money, and Friends of the Earth has thanked Vestas, you know, wind turbine maker, for giving them money. I, I think, how much do you think um, there's just corporate funding of the people interested in these things going into to keeping these nonprofits alive? Well, I, I, you know, and the work you've done on that is really important, Ken, and it's follow the money. Hello, this is one of the yeah. oldest maxims, maxims in politics, and particularly in the post-Watergate era. Follow the money. Where's the money coming from? Who's getting it? So it's not, and I would say, yes, there's some corporate money, and that explains a lot of this NGO behavior is look at who's funding them. But even more pernicious, I would argue, is the amount of dark money that is behind these groups as well. So RMI is getting money from a number of dark money outfits, including Climate Imperative, and and others i've got a i've been researching i don't know i gave a speech this morning i'm in bismarck north dakota and i've, I've been a little addled at the moment i can't recall all of the different big funding groups but the, the amount of money that is behind these ngos sierra Club, nrdc uh rmi the rest of them it's just staggering the amount of money and far outweighs far exceeds the amount of money being given to american petroleum institute or any of the pro hydrocarbon nonprofits. Yeah, I mean, you, even federally funded, you, you've done um, some work on on what the what just the nuclear receives fewer federal subsidies than like any other energy source, right? Well, uh, look at the latest numbers from the uh, Energy Information Administration. Solar on a per unit of energy basis is getting three hundred and two times more in federal tax incentives than nuclear. Three hundred. So, you know, and if you're in the, in the power business, I mean, you know, follow the money. Why did Willie Sutton rob banks? That's where the money is. If you're going to be, if you're going to be in the power business, why would you build anything else? Build solar. You get, you're going to get the government to pay most of your bill. Why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Warren Buffett said something similar about wind turbines uh, a few years back too. Um, no, no, no sensible reason to build them other than you get a subsidy. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, did you have a question, Mike? I was you were looking oh no i i i'd say if you got one more question i'd shoot that one more question um let's talk about electric vehicles you've uh done a fun quarterly uh takedown of uh ford's ev subsidies uh or <laughs> cost not just subsidies uh how much how much is for, what's 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 it costing ford to uh build f-150 lightning pickups sure well i think in the third quarter they lost something on the order of sixty-five thousand dollars for every electric vehicle they sold i mean it's you know they lose money on every ev but they're not making up for it in volume i mean it's truly staggering um uh and it's just this massive misadventure and even more recently you've seen ford for the second time in two months announced that it's going to cut production of its lightning pickup and then you had in on January 11th, Hertz announcing it's dumping a major portion of its Tesla fleet because of high repair costs and the fact that renters don't want to rent them. So, and, and I testified, I offered written testimony at the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee for that January 11th hearing. But if I may, I'm just going to you know remind the listeners about this new docuseries because we're putting more and more demand on the grid, right, for electric vehicles, for you know, all this electrify everything push and the rest of it. And the reality is the grid isn't ready to handle it. Costs are going up and reliability is going down. This is the bad, this is the, a, a bad trend. And that's why we made this project 
uh, and uh, you can find out more about it at juicetheseries.com. All righty. Well, Appreciate it. Uh, well, Robert, uh, thanks again to Robert Bryce for joining us. The five-part docuseries is titled Juice, Power, Politics, and the Grid. Where is that going to air? It's going to be on YouTube and is going to be for free. So uh, we're not looking to make money on this. We want to change the conversation. We want to focus attention on the grid, the fragilization of the grid, and why we need to be focused on uh, making it more reliable, more resilient, and making electricity more affordable. So juicetheseries.com is the place to go. All right. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.